Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Linda Simon on her new book, Lost Girls, The Invention of the Flapper. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Linda Simon on her new book, Lost Girls, The Invention of the Flapper. Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad that you decided to join the podcast today. So just to get our listeners started... Can you give us a little bit of your academic background and sort of how you got to the point where you were writing about the flapper? Okay, well, my career is in teaching. I was in the English department at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs. I've written uh, several biographies in cultural history, mostly focused on sort of turn of the century, early 20th century modernist figures. And... I did a biography of Coco Chanel um, a couple of years ago, and that got me thinking about the kind of myth um, around liberated women in the early 20th century. Um, Chanel had the reputation of being liberated, independent, an accomplished woman who, who made her career for herself, but she was very, very unhappy. Um, filled with a kind of self-hatred of just womanliness. And the the idea that she was liberated was contradicted by so much in her life and so much of what she said. Um, it seemed to me that the flapper was that kind of a myth, and I just felt that it was worthy of investigating. It didn't seem to me that there was such a fabulous party after the First World War that would have led to the kind of um, radically different image and lifestyle of women at the time. So that was my motivation to to do a little research in cultural history. Yeah, so you start out in your introduction uh, talking about how the idea of the flapper is sort of the series of contradictions. So what are these contradictions and sort of what were the attributes that were prescribed to a flapper or the idea of one? Well, the flapper was supposed to be um, sexually liberated. She was um, an aspiring, she was aspiring to independence. She didn't want the restrictions um, that had circumscribed the life of her mother or her grandmother. She wanted to um, take lovers, not necessarily marry, not necessarily spend her life taking care of children. I mean, there were all kinds of those things going on. Physically, she was supposed to be sort of active, athletic, out in the world, um, you know, short skirts and maybe even trousers and camping and tramping and biking and hiking, that kind of thing. At the same time, she was in a culture that was saying to her, you're going to lose men if you behave this way. You're not never going to get married, and that's the true destiny of women. You have to have children because society really wants you to have children. Motherhood is a sacred goal in your life. 
So the, there was one message coming in from a lot of places, the media, movies, um, Fitzgerald, <laughs> um, telling her, no, you can, you can go out and, you know, drink booze from a hip flask. And then there was another part of the culture saying to her, watch out. This is not going to end well for you. And that was, um, that was very difficult for girls to grow up in that kind of atmosphere. The other thing that really sort of set the, the project going is that if you think about the image of a flapper, she's very, very, very skinny. She looks like a teenage boy. She's supposed to be flat-chested, um, very short hair, and that seemed something in and of itself. Why did it happen like that? I mean, you can be a liberated woman. You can want your own career. You know, you can want not to be sequestered in taking care of the nursery. But why would you want to look like that? And that led me to a sort of discovery of the obsession with adolescence that was very strong in the, in America, in Great Britain, at around the turn of the century into the early 20th century. It was just undeniable. Yeah, and two people that you found that were sort of not only obsessed with themselves, but also sort of playing into the cultural obsession of adolescence was Mark Twain and G. Stanley Hall. So why did you start with analyzing sort of their role in, in this uh, craze of adolescence? Um, that, that's a really good question, and to focus on those two. Well, Mark Twain sort of notoriously had a little sorority of adolescent girls that he collected in his late years. He called them his angelfish. And he invited them to his home. And he had a little club. And he had special pins made for them. And they doted on him. They were um, they were sweet little girls, but they knew who they were dealing with. And he was um, a venerable old man at that time. Um, I think it, it was titillating and... and fun for him to have these girls sort of hanging all over him. But it did say something about the culture. It wasn't just Mark Twain. There was a sort of um, plot of the sugar daddy, you know, the the play Daddy Long Legs, where a wealthy man identifies a, a young orphan and funds her education. And, you know, there was, there was this um, allure of adolescent girls as, you know, adorable and vulnerable and, and made men feel very powerful. So that was one thing. And then G. Stanley Hall was a psychologist who was sort of looking for a niche um, to establish his reputation. He he was an educator. He was um, a, a graduate-trained psychologist. And he became a lecturer about a very important question in the culture, and that was, how do we tame the rebellion that we're seeing among our young women? So they were going, these, you know, adolescents were going to high school. They were not just being educated at home. They were going to college where they had a peer group that that supported their ideas, and they were becoming rebellious. They wouldn't listen to their parents. You know, they um, they called their mothers old-fashioned. Well, what were we going to do about that? And uh, Hall um, did a lot of research and published two volumes 
huge volume called Adolescence. They came out in 1906, and they really um, they really transformed how people saw teenagers. It was he he sort of invented it. And what exactly were these sort of large anthologies saying about adolescents? They of course dealt with adolescent boys as well as adolescent girls. But but his take on adolescent girls were that they were flighty, fickle not intellectually as capable as boys, that their real role was to nurture and have children, that they needed to be um they needed to be directed to that role and not allowed to go in any other direction. Um he was quite old fashioned in terms of how he wanted girls raised, but it was a definite um danger if girls were allowed to be independent, which he thought they couldn't handle. He denigrated independent girls as possibly lesbians or, um, you know, sexually not feminine. I mean, they, so anyway, that was, um, that was Hall's take. And he was very popular as a speaker because that's what people wanted to hear. Uh, you mentioned kind of early on how people were concerned that if sort of this middle-class white woman wasn't to marry and produce children, that there's sort of like a national crisis about what that would produce. And it kind of touched on who the public thought was sort of reproducing at a higher rate, like uh, Italians or African-Americans. Yeah, there was a, a very large movement at the time pronounced by Theodore Roosevelt, but taken up by many other people that the white population was going to die out. They called it race suicide. And in order for the population not to die out, middle-class and upper-class white women needed to have children. Some people said six. Some people said, well, okay, four. But they needed to have children. So the the pressure on middle-class white girls to have a family was seen not just as a as an issue of femininity, but as a national mission. And they were letting down the country if they decided not to have one, not to have children. And that became um, that became very widespread. Of course, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, immigration questions were very pressing, and there was tremendous xenophobia against um, immigrants from. You know, from Italy, from Spain, from Eastern Europe especially, um, that these people who were somehow quote-unquote darker were going to take over the country and the country was not going to be the America that everybody knew and wanted. And that may sound familiar, but that's what was going on at the time. Yeah, uh, strikingly, I felt like there are a lot of portions of your book that uh, sound horrifyingly familiar. What were the conversations that were sort of happening in schools? So both at sort of the, uh, what we would kind of consider a K through 12 level, but also kind of at the university level around this time. Yes. In schools, um, there were two conversations actually going on. One was that the teachers were telling girls, they could do anything. They were excelling in school. 
you know, you take any adolescent population and the girls did very well. And so they were praised. They were told that they were able and smart and they were encouraged to go on with their education. And that was, you know, from high school on up. At the same time, um, sometimes the school atmosphere made it very difficult for them to embrace that. Um, Hall, for example, advocated that girls be sent to schools that were at, in a kind of summer camp setting, you know, where they would um, learn to romp through the flowers and play with pets and sew and do domestic work, but not be challenged by any real intellectual work. So there was a, a there was a, a contradiction in the conversation over education. Um, even women who were seen as liberated women, like Ida Torbell, the journalist, um, was quite reactionary when it came to how girls should be educated. And she said, no, girls should learn domestic arts. Their, uh, their role in society is to be mothers, is to create um, supportive, intelligent, moral homes for their families, and they should learn how to run a household and to be sort of companions to their husbands who would then go out into the world. Yeah, and kind of going along with sort of uh, what is happening with the adolescents themselves, but uh, you you have a chapter, chapter two, devoted to sort of the popular culture that was, that was being consumed by young people at the time. And you talk a lot about, you know, Peter Pan in particular. So... What what role did the this uh, sort of prolongment of adolescence have to do with the historical narrative of the flapper? Not so much prolongment as a sudden recognition that this was a stage of life that was very appealing. I think it's really interesting that Peter Pan um, burst onto the scene at the same time that Mark Twain was creating his angelfish and Hall was was pronouncing about female adolescence because Peter Pan is a very complicated character. First of all, well, first of all, James Barry was a complicated character, but but Peter Pan was a, an adolescent who left home, um, who was living in a community of adolescent boys, who adopted Wendy as the mother, quote unquote, mother for the for the boys in Neverland, and yet. In every production ever, Peter Pan has been played by a woman. So a woman was taking the role of a looking like and behaving like an adolescent. And even though Peter Pan was Peter, the message that he was sending to the people that to the audience members was, I'm a girl. I mean, look at what a girl can do if a girl could just fly away from the constrictions of home. And People, you know, I've read memoirs of girls growing up at this time, and they were inspired by Peter Pan. They wanted to be Peter Pan. They wanted to wear Peter Pan collars. That became a very um, popular fashion style for girls. So it was, you, if you look out into the culture, you see a lot of kind of rediscovery of adolescence that was very appealing. Um, girls also, all of a sudden, had book series that were similar to the Hardy Boys or, you know, the other adventure series, 
where girls had adventures. And this was a new thing. So suddenly girls thought, well, I can go on an overnight trip. I can solve a mystery. You know, we have the Nancy Drew stories that came later, but they were, um, the pattern for them was set by these early series. Right. And, you know, one of the interesting things that you point out in the chapter uh, about Peter Pan and something that is brought up, you know, in other parts of the book as well is that this idea of the character of Peter Pan sort of brought about this almost challenge to the gender binary and argued that gender was this more fluid conception, something that we're a lot more familiar with uh, today. But um, I thought that was a really interesting point that uh, a lot of these sort of pop culture references uh, that have to do with adolescence sort of suggested that this period of adolescence, you know, I think you argue at one point in the book was almost considered a separate gender. Yes, that's a really good point. And I think you're right that um, the the definition of how to be feminine or the definition of how to be masculine sort of broke apart for adolescents. And that's a really interesting happening that is still continuing. I mean, we look at um, the sort of emphasis on youth, you know, for, well, for everybody, but for adult women, the emphasis on thinness, the emphasis on um, the styles, it's all a kind of fetishizing of adolescence. We had a period in, in sort of feminism when women wanted to be called women, even if they were 13, and you couldn't, let's say, call your, your little students girls because that would be an insult. But now we're back to the, you go girl. You know, it, it's being a girl is not a, a put-down anymore. And I think that there's this ongoing threat of um, of the importance of that adolescent moment for figuring out identity, not just for the person, but for uh, but for gender and for life stages. You know, where does adolescent fit in with who you are? Right, and I, I think that's you know just a really interesting point, especially because you know going back to our conversation about schools, it seems like we're having a resurgence in sort of the same arguments that you point out in the book about sort of single-sex education. Um, And I think that's really interesting. Uh, But in your historical narrative, when when we hit the 1890s, uh, we start to see this emergence of the modern girl. So so who is the modern girl and who is sort of writing about it? Um, The modern girl goes to school and wants a job at the end. Now, whether it will be a job that will sustain her throughout her life, she wants some, she wants some, some activity in the world and she wants a political voice. So the modern girl wanted the vote on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, that's who the modern girl was and that's of course who parents and Hall were so worried about because that seemed, um, it seemed like a masculine identity. It seemed like girls were becoming, um, they wanted to be boys. Hall even says, you know, he interviewed some girls and they all told him they wished that they were boys. And that was a terrible, terrible thing for him to hear. So that was the modern girl. And lots of people were writing, lots of women were writing about it. And, 
um, defending it at the time in the 1890s. And I think what we see is a kind of evolution of the modern girl as a character in stories and in movies. Because once girls, you know, the movies came a little later than these girls' series, and once girls started going to the movies and seeing actresses play these roles so that it, it had a reality that it didn't when they were just reading about it, um, that, then the modern girl became, oh, look, you know, I can look like that, I can act like that, I can flirt like that, and that will be a good thing. And that will be fun. And so the movies did a great deal to promote this idea of the modern girl in the early, in the early 20th century. What role did movie theaters and dance halls play in the sort of narrative of the theater? It got them out of the house, for sure. I mean, dance halls were a big surprise to me. I didn't realize how, um, how prominent and how important they were for young women at the time. But um, girls used to, you know, run from school to the dance hall. There would be tea dances in the afternoon. And they uh, dancing became a craze beyond belief because it got them active in a peer group, away from chaperones, away from their parents, away from from the the kind of lives that they didn't want to live. And movies did the same thing. You know, you sit in the dark and you watch actresses um, that you were learning about because um, at the same time as movies, there was the invention of the movie magazine. And so, you know, these the actresses became models, role models and models on every level. So both of those things were important. And one of the most important dancers of the time was Irene Castle, who was really one of the first slappers. Um, even Fitzgerald, when he was accused of having invented the flapper with his stories in the 1920s, said, no, no, this started way before. It started with Irene Castle. And um, she was uh, slender, graceful, talented, and wore flowing clothes, cut her hair. I mean, she just, she looked so different. She became somebody that that women aspired to be. Yeah, and at both of these uh, venues, you again sort of have uh, an emergence of sort of uh, almost racial nativism, right? These these worries of white slavery. Um, I wondered if you wanted to go into that as sort of the a, a parental mechanism to, you know, stop girls from going to these places. Yes, there was a rumor about white slavery. And of course, there was the um, uptick of worry about vice, because as soon as you let girls out, <laughs> um, then the, they can be seduced, they can be kidnapped, they can be drugged, um, they can be led astray, they can become fallen women. I mean, those were all narratives that were out there. But white slavery was a really fun one, because it, it really it wasn't happening, but it became a kind of urban myth, and parents, of course, worried about it. Who wouldn't, you know, to allow your girls out into the world, and they would be um, abducted mostly by Eastern European men and forced to be forced into prostitution. 
And, um, you know, if you look back at the newspapers of the time, which were my main sources for this book, it's hilarious what people were writing about and worrying about and the, the extent to which these, um, these worries became repeated and repeated and, and amplified. Yeah. But, you know, whenever, whenever women or whenever anybody, but mostly women are in a period of transition, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of mythology circling around that in order to keep them back where they were before. The vote, for example, the suffrage issue generated so much of that because, um, to give women the vote just seemed, uh, like, you know, then you're on a slippery slope and who knows what they'll want after that. Yeah. I was actually going to, to ask you sort of, you know, what happened sort of on both sides of the Atlantic where you have this um, sort of idea with the flapper intersecting with the women's suffrage movement? Well, to some extent, I mean, for some suffragettes, they did not want to be associated with flappers because flappers already had the reputation of being party girls. And so the suffragists and the suffragettes were quite serious, and they didn't want um, the, the image of the flapper. On the other hand, there were quite a number of independent women who were lobbying for the vote. They wanted a political voice. Um, they wanted to be able to monitor what was going on in, in governments on both sides of the Atlantic. And it took, it, of course, it took forever to get the vote. And, you know, the, the story in Great Britain is that once, um, the government saw how vital women were to the war effort, you know, they decided, well, these women deserve the vote. But it was much more complicated than that. You know, who were the women going to vote for? Who were the women? Not all women got the vote in Great Britain. It was only certain women of a certain age. And then, you know, it began to be expanded. How was that going to help the parties that were entrenched at the time? So it wasn't wasn't an act of benevolence or goodness. I don't think that the women got the vote. But they finally got it, and then they became very disillusioned because they felt that their voices were not able to really change what was going on. So as we sort of move farther into the 20th century, and I think this was a really interesting part of your book, but what happened to advertising uh, in that period and how did it affect sort of the idea of the flapper? The flapper, to a large extent, the flapper that we know, you know, this iconic image of the slinky dress, the skinny woman in the slinky dress with spangles and, you know, a lot of that was created by the media. And one of the biggest creations was a cartoonist named John Hilt. He was the illustrator for Fitzgerald's covers. And his flappers were the way we see flappers. If you look at actual photographs of flappers, they were not so skinny. They didn't wear their sh- skirts so short as we envision. Um, they were fairly sedate looking by our standards. Even if you look at Chanel, who was beloved by the flappers because of her sort of slim, soft style, um, her little black dress ended mid-calf. It was very conservative. You could wear it to church. But, you know, the the... The kind of mythology that has emerged is that 
the flappers were, you know, sort of half undressed all the time and had this, you know, had a, a line around the block of guys that wanted to, to date them. And that's just not, it's not the reality. It wasn't even the reality in Fitzgerald's stories. The flappers weren't so terribly happy. And it seems as though the idea of the flapper, the flapper became a commodity. Yes, and to cosmetics companies especially, and to lingerie companies because they needed to have compressing garments um, to people who, to physicians who were doing cosmetic surgery, they became an important commodity. I mean, there, the slappers had an idea of what the image was, and they also had an idea from advertising and from the media of how to get that image. So all of a sudden, and this was not true in the early 20th century or the turn of the century, but all of a sudden women started dieting extremely rigorously, you know, 800 calories a day. They started smoking because that would cut their appetite. They started chewing gum that would also curb their appetite. They wanted to become skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And, you know, anyone who's involved in gender studies knows that this effacement of the body is a reflection of something that's going on in the person's identity. And that's an important question when you go to, when you investigate the flappers. What were, what were they trying to get disappeared by all of this um, tearing down of the body? What were they trying to get disappeared in terms of sexuality if they wanted to cut their hair and look like adolescent boys? You know, what were they trying to get disappeared? There were not only cosmetic surgery, but there were hormonal therapies and x-ray therapies that were supposed to do something to the hormones in the body and rejuvenate. So what was going on? You know, what was going on? What was the, what was the culture telling us about the meaning of maturity or the meaning of female sexuality? or the, the new definition of femininity, if this was the result. And I think one of the things that I hope readers will take away from the book is that none of this is over. We see so much of this going on in the culture at, at the time, and it sort of bears reflection. Who are we as women? Right, and you know, this is a slight aside, but it has to do with sort of the effort to rejuvenate oneself, the, the use of x-rays was sort of like a horrifying example that you use. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Um, X-rays, yeah, in in reality, and there was a a very important novel at the time in which the um, woman protagonist comes back to her hometown after having been in Europe, and she seems younger than when she left, and it's because she had this um, extreme X-ray therapy where the X-rays would be focused on the ovaries, and that was supposed to somehow rejuvenate, and she was an example of rejuvenation. Um, You know, this was a a period also of speculation about the possibility that science might actually be able to rejuvenate in in lots of ways. So yeah, x-ray therapy, and for men too, um, tried it, was one of the, of course, unknowns at the time, and People didn't realize it was actually going to kill them. By the time we get 
to the 1920s, mid to late 1920s, what were people feeling, or what were women feeling about the idea of the flapper? Well, in the 1920s, um, the flapper was a character. You know, she was a, a type. And it was fun. I mean, it was fun to think about flappers as um, in, in theater, in movies, in books, and sort of in life. I mean, why not, why not take on those fashions? But the, the contradiction that, that went all through this was still there. Um, women in 1920, let's say women in 1920 who had worked during the war. So they had been out in the marketplace. They had jobs. Then the men come home from, from the war. They need those jobs back. What were women going to do with their lives? And there was a lot of pressure to one, repopulate. Two, go back to make homes for the returning soldiers. Three, not take jobs from men. So all of those things were going on while women were saying, well, wait a minute, we had a couple of years of independence and some of us liked it. What are we supposed to do now? So it was not just a time of partying and, you know, revelry. It was a time of rethinking what was society going to be like now that women had had a taste of independence. And yet... Um, some of them liked it, some of them didn't. Did the contradictions that women face, were they uh, slightly different than sort of in the 1890s, or were they pretty much the same contradictions still existing? It was slightly different because it was a later time, and, and women had had, you know, a couple of generations of, well, not a couple, but maybe a generation of experience being more out in the world. But a woman, let's say, who was 20 in 1920, so she had been born in 1900, her mother was still of the generation that we started out talking about. You know, the generation that was deeply suspicious of women's independence, the generation that wanted to prevent race suicide, that feared for her daughter's downfall, that just feared independence. So that that girl, being 20 years old in 1920, would have still been um, inheriting all of those fears from her mother, that from her parents, from the culture in which her mother grew up. It, it really takes a while for cultural change to actually happen and for women not to carry some of those burdens. So I would say yes, in the 1920s it was different. There was, there was more publicity about it. There was more opportunity to see different ways of living. But you still were carrying with you some of the messages of the 1890s and early 1900s. And that took a very long time to dissipate. And I think one of the more interesting things now that we've been talking for a little bit about your book is within the title, you, your sort of subtitle is the invention of the flapper. So why, why did you pick the word invention? Um, because I think that an invention take has a, has a period of development. 
it's not something that just bursts like um, an exploding star, or even that has a period of development. But it has a history. Any invention has a history. And I wanted to delve into that history. I didn't want the book to be another celebration of flappers. There are so many books like that. And, and I didn't believe them. And my research said, no, that isn't the, really the right story. This was an evolution. Um, I could have called it the evolution of the flavor, but that seemed a little bit too Darwinian, and that's not what I meant. I meant that the flavor was really a cultural invention. That's how she ended up. And women's lives at the time were being reinvented. So I think that was an important word. And I called them lost girls because I wanted to evoke the lost boys, Peter Pan's lost boys. You know, they really, um, they really needed to create a world for themselves. They were kind of lost, um, in, in a culture that sent them mixed messages. You know, they were, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I thought that they were, they were lost girls and especially let's underscore girls. Right. And, you know, I know you've already mentioned a couple of, uh, takeaways that you hope the reader will have once they read your book, what would be the sort of like one takeaway that you hope if anything sticks to, for the people that pick up your book is sort of what message that you wish you to uh, have come across? Um, well, to question myths, <laughs> I think that's a, a really healthy thing to do. You know, um, I, for example, when I was writing the biography of Chanel, so many women said, Chanel liberated women from corsets and she changed the way women saw themselves. And I thought, no, that's the myth. But you read what Chanel was writing or thinking or, or her own ideas, and that is totally not what was going on. And I think that questioning myths is a healthy thing. Um, also, I don't think we should sort of idolize flappers as the pinnacle of, of free, liberated women, because they did come from from contradictions. And the contradictions that they felt are things that are contradictions that we still feel. So I hope that the book will sort of illuminate our own moment. You know, in who are women now? What do they want? How can they get what they want? And what sort of, um, what sort of inventions are we going through now as women? I, th I think that's a really important takeaway. And I, I think it's something that your book does really well. And I know we've taken a lot of your time today. Uh, so I wanted to sort of close with this. Uh, if anyone sort of picks up your book and really enjoys it, which I'm sure they will if they do check out your book, what other books or maybe authors would you sort of recommend they also check out if they want to learn more about this topic? Well, I can recommend two um, straight off. One is Jane Hunter's book, How Young Ladies Became Girls. Um, this was published by Yale in 2002, and it's, it's really um, maybe a little prequel to my book. It's how girls in, in Victorian times sort of emerged from being demure young ladies into being kind of feistier girls. And another is um, Carol Dye, Dye House's Girl Trouble, which is um, 
a larger historical uh, view, but is is really fun and and very well very well supported. So I would recommend that as well. well. That sounds great, and I want to thank you again for joining the New Books Network. And I would encourage anyone listening to check out Lost Girls: The Invention of the Flapper. Again, thank you, Dr. Simon. Oh, thank you.